Life is a struggle. Some people have posted on Facebook that it is extremely easy in this quarantine to eat junk food. I find it easy when I'm not on quarantine to eat junk food. But it's especially challenging if you're trying to lose weight. Life is a struggle. There was a graduating class that had as its motto, rowing, not drifting. Because they understood that life is a struggle, and if you want to meet goals, it's a struggle. It's a fight. And so we fight against goals, against the the things in life in order to reach our goals. And shining our light in a dark world is a struggle sometimes. That's our goal as Christians, to be a candle in a dark world, but it's a struggle. And sometimes that struggle motivates us to complain or to grumble. And we really ought to be careful what we complain or grumble about because sometimes our complaining shows more about us than it does about the situation we're whining about. I'm reminded of the mom that was out driving her car with her little kindergarten son. And as they were driving, her son said, Mommy, why is it that idiots only come out when daddy's driving? We want to shine our light. But sometimes shining our light in a dark world causes us to grumble and complain. And when we grumble and complain, that affects our ability to shine as a light. Now, we all understand that Jesus is the light of the world. John chapter 8 and verse 12. It's the teachings of Christ and the life of Christ, the character of Christ, that is the light of the world. But the Bible also teaches that you and I are to reflect that light. We have a light that it reflects the light of the Son of God. Just like the moon reflects the light of the sun, you and I as Christians reflect the light of Jesus Christ. Sometimes that can be a challenge. And so I invite you, if you've not yet, to turn in your copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 2 because the Apostle Paul tells us in these verses we've read this morning from verse 12 to verse 18 how we need to shine our light in our home, in our marriage, and in our community. Now before we get to verse 12, I want to point out what the context is. So we back back up to verse uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 1. And when we read this verse, I want you to understand that the word if in the original language, at least the structure of the sentence, carries the idea of since. Okay, so Paul says that since we have encouragement in Christ, since we have consolation of love in Christ, since we have fellowship of the Spirit in Christ, since we have affection and compassion for one another, He says in verse 2, make my joy complete. How are are we to make Paul's joy complete? He says, by being united. Notice what he says there in verse 2. You need to be united in mind. You need to be united in love. You need to be united in spirit. You need to be united in purpose. 
But there's a problem. There's a problem with having unity. And the problem with having unity is my ego. The problem with having unity is my interest, my desires, my wants. And so Paul tells the Christians in Philippi in verse 3, he says, you need to do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but you need to regard one another in humility as more important than yourselves. That's how you're going to have unity. And so in verse 4, Paul says, don't look out for your own interest, but look out for the interest of others. Do you see what a challenge that is? And then in verse 5, he says, I want you to have the same mindset, I want you to have the same thinking that Jesus Christ had. And so in verse 5 through verse 11, Paul gives us one of the most beautiful descriptions of the person of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. I want you to understand that his, his primary goal is to challenge us to be humble. And yet he holds Jesus up as the best example of that. You see in verse 5, he says that Jesus was equal with God before he came to earth. But in verse 7, Jesus emptied himself so that he could come to earth. And he humbled himself in the plan of his Father so that he could go to the cross and die for the sins of mankind. And because Jesus was willing to humble himself before his Father, in verse 9, Paul says that God rewarded Jesus for that humility and that obedience by giving Jesus a name that is exalted above every name so that every human being, either now or at judgment, is going to show respect for the Son of God. He's going to worship the Son of God. She's going to confess the name of Jesus. That's the reward God has given to Jesus because of his obedience out of humility. So understanding the context of this paragraph, I want us to spend most of our time focused on verses 12 through 18. Verse 12 begins with the words, so that or therefore, which shows us that Paul is drawing a conclusion. After Paul says you need to look out for one another, you need to be concerned about one another because that's what Jesus would do. Therefore, he says, beginning in verse 12, beloved. And notice in verse 12, Paul assumes they're being obedient. Paul says, just as you have been obeying, you've always obeyed. Not as in my presence only, but now even more in my absence. The church of Christ was established in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Lydia was a businesswoman. She and her household were baptized into Christ. 
And then the jailer and his household were baptized into Christ. At that time, Luke, the medical doctor who wrote Luke and Acts, was with Paul, but Luke stayed in Philippi. And Luke continued to work with the church of Christ in Philippi for several years before he rejoined the Apostle Paul's mission team. So all of these years, the Christians in Philippi had been growing and maturing and being obedient. And so Paul here says in verse 13, As you have been obeying, now, he says, you need to work out your own salvation. In the original language, your salvation comes before the command for emphasis. In other words, Paul says, your salvation, work it out. This verb, work out, is found 22 times in the New Testament. 11 of those times are just in the letter of Romans. And as I look through the times it was used and how the translators translated that word, I found these variations. So I took the translation to other places and I put it here in this place. What is Paul saying when he says, work out your own salvation? He's saying, effect your own salvation. He's saying, accomplish your own salvation. He's saying, you need to commit your own salvation. You need to produce your own salvation. And so Paul is clearly saying here that we contribute to our salvation in the sense that we have to obey what God has told us to do. Now there's a lot of misunderstanding in the religious world about the relationship between obedience and grace. Protestant scholars and Protestant preachers focus so much on the idea that we're saved by grace that they completely pervert God's Word when it comes to obedience and specifically baptism. Now we are saved by grace. There's a lot of people that do not understand the concept that we are saved by grace. But there's just as many people if not more, who don't understand that we're also saved by our obedience. And the difference is this. The difference is the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is the foundation, it's the basis, it's the grounds that pay the penalty for sin. That's the grace of God. The gracious gift of God is Christ going to the cross. But when I obey Jesus Christ and I do what Jesus tells me to do, what Jesus commands me to do, then that is me appropriating that gracious gift to myself. That's me taking advantage of that sacrifice for myself, as Aaron did this last Monday night. And so Paul here says that you need to work out your own salvation. It's like the old black gospel preacher Marshall Keeble once said. He said, God has a vote uh, for you and Satan has a vote against you and you get to cast the deciding vote. Look at what Paul says here in verse 13. It is God 
at work in you. Now, if salvation was entirely by the grace of God, then everybody would be saved. But it's not only by the grace of God. God is at work in us. Paul writes, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God's good intention. So as Brother Keeble said, it's God's will, it's God's intention that we be saved. It's Satan's will, Satan's intention for us to be lost. The difference between the two is our response to the commands of Christ. And so if we're going to allow our candle to burn in our community, number one, we've got to obey Jesus Christ. Second of all, verses 14 through 16. If we're going to allow our candle to burn, if we're going to be a light in our home and our community, the second thing we have to do is to do. Verse 14, do all things is the command. And it's a command that governs the next three verses. And I'll emphasize that as we go through the verses. Number one, Paul says, do all things without grumbling. Now, when I think about grumbling, I think about the Israelites who have come out of slavery in Egypt. They've been out of Egypt for a month in Exodus chapter 16. And they grumble because they need water. In the first 12 verses of Exodus chapter 16, the word grumble is found eight times. And in fact... Exodus chapter 16 is the third out of four chapters in a row where the Israelites grumble about something. Chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. The Apostle Paul says, don't grumble. He says to husbands, don't grumble. He says to wives, don't grumble. He says to children, don't grumble. He says to parents, don't grumble. Do you want to let your light shine in your community? Paul says, do all things without grumbling. What's the difference between grumbling and complaining and constructive criticism? What's the difference? It's the context of Philippians chapter 2. The context of Philippians chapter 2 is humility. Am I... Am I offering criticism that is constructive out of humility to make the person better or to make a situation better? Last Sunday, I talked about confronting with care. That's done in humility. Or am I grumbling for selfish reasons? And I, am I grumbling because of personal selfish reasons? In that case, Paul would say, do all things without grumbling. Constructive criticism makes things better. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, when the church of Christ in Jerusalem was distributing food to the widows, there was a group of the widows that were being neglected, and they grumbled, but God didn't criticize their grumbling. He did not correct their grumbling. Instead, He told the apostles, you need to appoint men, you need to appoint deacons to oversee this work so that it will be more efficient and you won't have anybody fall through the cracks. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9. Peter says you need to do hospitality, practice hospitality without grumbling. That is, do so with humility. 
because you're serving others. So number one, Paul says, do all things without grumbling. Number two, Paul says, do all things without disputing. Now that verb translated disputing means to reason thoroughly. It means to think carefully. And yet, as I look through the examples of that word's use in the New Testament, I found that most of the time the word is used in a negative way. These are ways that the word is translated in other places. Doubts, speculations, opinions, dissensions, evil motives. And so if I were to translate that word, I might translate this word as nitpicking. Do all things without nitpicking. And so we need to ask ourselves, before we, before we offer some words of criticism out of our mouths, we need to ask ourselves, am I really just picking nits? Paul says, if you want to like, let your candle shine in your community, do all things without nitpicking. Number three, in verse 15, Paul says that we need to do all things. Notice verse 15 starts with the phrase, so that, that's purpose, do all things so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless. Blameless means I can stand before God and Him not find any sin in me. That's blameless. And when we serve our family, we serve our community, we need to do that with, with pure hearts, with pure motives. If we make a mistake, it needs to be a mistake of the head, not a mistake of the heart. And so we make sure our hearts are right with God, even as we try to make sure our actions are right with God. You really can't have one without the other. But if we're going to make a mistake, we make it with our hearts in the right place. Serve God first and serve our fellow man. And when we do that, then our, our lives will be blameless. Do all things so that you can prove yourselves to be blameless. Number two, do all things so that you can prove yourselves to be innocent. The word translated innocent here means to be without fault. Jesus challenges his disciples in Matthew 10 and verse 16 that we need to be as innocent as doves. Paul challenges us in Romans chapter 16 to be as innocent, to be innocent in anything that is evil. Be innocent. Do all things so that you can show yourselves to be children of God. Jesus is the only natural child of God. Jesus is the only unique Son of God by nature. But thanks be to God that you and I can be children of God by grace. We become children of God when we are immersed into Christ through baptism, Galatians 3 and verse 20, 26 and 27. And we show ourselves to be children of God when we love other people, including our brethren in the church. That's 1 John 4 and verse 7. So do all things so that you can show yourself to be above reproach. That word above reproach means without defect. It's the word that was used in the Old Testament relative to the animals that were offered as sacrifices to God. Those animals were perfect. They were perfect specimens. They were without defect. Jesus Christ is the only one who was without defect. 
by his own actions. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice without defect, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, and Peter tells us, 1 Peter 1 and verse 19, but you and I can also be without defect. You and I can be above reproach again by the grace of God, and again it comes ultimately through the waters of baptism. That's Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. And so Paul says, if you want to let your light shine, your candle shine in the community, do all things so that you will prove yourselves to be in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. That word appear probably should be translated shine. And it is, in fact, a participle. So Paul is saying, in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation, you are shining as lights in the world. There's the idea that we're candles. That we're shining in in the middle of a crooked and a perverse generation. Let me say a word about this word perverse. It also is a verb. And it carries the idea that it was perverted in the past and it is still perverted. We are living in a having been perverted generation. God created everything perfect and beautiful and good in the Garden of Eden. And Satan comes along and he perverts it. He makes the straight ways of God crooked. Back when I was growing up, when most of our adults were growing up, the word pervert referred to a homosexual. And homosexuality is, of course, a perversion of the pure sexuality that God created and God designed. But all sin is a perversion of what God has created. All sin is a perversion of what God has designed to be good. And so we're living in a perverted society. So Paul says you need to let your light shine in this crooked and perverted society. And verse 16 is point number five. You need to do all things holding fast the word of life. Again, the word of life is found before the verb. The word of life holding fast. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, the phrase word of life refers to Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh. But in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, Peter and John have been let out of prison and the angel tells them, go and stand and speak to the people in the temple the words of this life, the gospel message. And so when Paul here talks about the word of life, he's talking about both Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel message. And he says that you need to hold fast the word of life. That word, hold fast. It also means to examine carefully. It means to pay it close attention to. And so Paul here says that you need to do all things paying close attention to the word of life. Jesus Christ and his message. And so we need to understand the gospel of Christ and we need to live the gospel of Christ and we need to teach the gospel of Christ. Paul will encourage Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16. Very same words, very similar words. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 16. 
to this young preacher, Paul says, pay close attention, same verb, pay close attention to yourself and to your teachings, for in doing so you will save yourself and those who hear you. And so Paul says, do all things, paying close attention to the Word of God, so that, this is the result, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory. Do you remember that Paul said God gave Jesus a reward, verse 7, for his obedience? Here Paul is saying we have a reward for our obedience, for letting our candle shine in our community. Paul says, I have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul is saying that when he gets to heaven and he sees his Christian brethren from Philippi there in heaven, he will realize that they stayed faithful to the gospel message and he didn't do anything in vain. Family, we're never going to be motivated all the time to do the right thing. And that's why we've got to have self-discipline. So that when we don't feel like doing the right thing, our spiritual minds will kick into gear and will compel us to do the right thing. To let our candle shine in our community. And then the last two verses in this paragraph, Paul uses a very powerful metaphor to illustrate his desire for the Philippians to know the gospel of Christ and to live the gospel of Christ. He says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, now that is all one word in the original language. I pour myself out as a drink offering for the sacrifice and service of your faith. Paul has already said that Jesus was sacrificed for us earlier in the chapter. But Paul is not considering himself to be an atonement sacrifice. That's Christ's job. And nobody can do that. But Paul says, I am pouring myself out as a drink offering for the sacrifice and service of the faith of the Philippian Christians. Paul used the same idea, pouring out as a drink offering, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 where he was, in fact, basically on his deathbed. But it was for the purpose of the Philippian Christians. And so, family, as we try to allow our candle to shine in our community, we need to pour ourselves out as a drink offering for the sake of the faith of people around us. We should constantly ask ourselves, what is the impact on people around me when they see me doing this? Or hear me saying this, is it strengthening their faith in God or is it weakening their faith in God? That's how we let our candle shine. At the end of verse 17, Paul says, I rejoice and I am sharing my joy with you. And he says, in the same way, you too are urged to rejoice in Jesus Christ. And I want you to share your joy with me. And so Paul wants to encourage the Christians in Philippi to continue being obedient to Jesus Christ so that they can continue having a positive influence on the people around them. So family, if we want to be a candle in our community, 
Number one, we have got to be unselfish. We've got to live like Christ. Don't grumble and don't nitpick. Shine your light in your community as you live out the teachings of Jesus Christ, holding tightly to the Word of God in your teachings and in your lives, in your speech. Pour yourself out as a drink offering for the faith of your family, the faith of your neighbors in service to others.